Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I am genuinely delighted to have Jane Gunn, corporate peacemaker, mediator, speaker, and chair of the Board of Management of Chartered Institute of Arbitrators. She works internationally to facilitate mediation with companies, individuals, and countries, I guess, as well. Uh, is that fair? Hello, yes. Hello, Marcus. <laughs> is that fair? Fair to say, well, I'm not sure I've worked between countries yet, but uh, I'd love to have a go, honestly. It would be there's an awful, awful lot of work out there to be done, isn't there? Absolutely. And, and I suspect there, there may be a few rifts that need fixing it politically. But anyway, let's park that for a moment. <laughs> Jane, can you give me 90 seconds in terms of your journey to get to where you are today? Yes. So a quick synopsis. I started out as a lawyer. I became a commercial property lawyer. I enjoyed that because I was very good at managing difficult clients rather than I enjoyed the commercial work. Took a career break to have my children. Then I was in the library and a library book fell on my head, a heavy tome fell on my head. And this book was called Love, Medicine and Miracles by Dr. Bernie Siegel. And he was explaining how he had put love and relationships and emotions at the heart of his work as a doctor. And I thought, why can't we do the same as lawyers and solve our clients' problems in a different way? And that was the beginning of my journey to being a mediator and a peacemaker, full stop. (laughs) So this is your Newtonian moment. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Excellent. Tell me something. I'm going to start out with a big question. Mm. Why the hell are we so crazy? As a species, we seem to be barking mad. And I think it was Mark Twain, I'm paraphrasing, said, when you realize the whole world is mad, everything makes sense. Why are we so barking mad? I don't know. I struggle with this. And I I think we see, you know, we're in the stage of we're in, we're speaking, Marcus, in the middle of this COVID crisis. And to me, this is mass hysteria, actually. I think we're in the middle of some kind of mass hysteria. I agree. We've got you know, we've got a virus, we've got a situation that we need to manage. But the way the world seems to have reacted to it is as though we've got something inside of all of us that needs to be let out and vented. And I think we're just seeing that all around the world. And then we get this sort of escalation of that, or sort of, you know, it's like a rolling stone gathering moss as we go around. I don't know what it is, really. I think we all, I mean, my exploration recently is that for whatever reason, we all have deeply embedded trauma within us. And I don't know where that comes from, but as the generations go on and on and on, and and I've been studying this thing called epidemiology, where you actually, and it's epigenetics, isn't it? Epigenetics, where you actually carry the trauma of past generations with you. And I think we've got to a stage in society uh, having exploded as a human race and trying to live in society with each other where we're all just carrying so much trauma and we just take it out on each other that's a simple take of it perhaps well if anyone's interested in a couple of examples of this epigenetics there are fat thin indians and fat thin dutch people because during the war in holland when there was starvation and uh, during famine in india you have vegetarians who work t- walk 10, 12 miles a day who have massive levels of cholesterol. They've got very little body fat, but they do have a huge amount of cholesterol in their system. And it's inherited through the, uh, the mother in the womb because the mother was experiencing famine. And net result of that was that when they came out of the womb, their genes had been triggered. And as a result, they've now got this, these genes that have triggered a shift in their biochemistry. I think you also can refer back to our good friend Philip Larkin with mm. his fabulous poem, This Be the Verse. They fuck you up, your mum and dad. They don't mean to, but they do. They fill you with all the faults they had and add some extra just for you. Tell me, as a professional mediator of many years' experience, what are the four most common questions that you get asked? when it comes to conflict and how to resolve it? I guess people say, can I tell you my story? The first thing they want to do is is offload to tell me their story. They don't quite know how I can help them. So what exactly is it you do? Many people don't know the difference between a mediator, a judge and arbitrator. So they're actually, actually still not sure what they're buying into. 
I think they don't know how the process works. So they're looking for a solution. Well, they don't know what the answer to that is. I don't know if that's for I've given you, but those are the sort of things that people come up with. Okay. So can you explain the difference between mediation and arbitration? Yes. So that's a common misunderstanding. So they're both what we might call, or they're both termed as, as alternative dispute resolution processes. In other words, they're designed to take you outside the traditional court system. But an arbitrator is traditionally an expert or a panel of experts who make a decision. They hear your evidence and they make a decision, whereas a mediator doesn't make a decision, doesn't make any judgment, and in fact simply, in my case, facilitating a conversation and a process to help people make their own decision about how to solve their dispute. Okay. And in terms of how mediation works or how it works well, let me put it that way, uh, what does a good mediation process look like? So from my perspective, a good mediation process is involving everybody who's going to be there and thinking also about who's not going to be there, who might be on the periphery, who are other stakeholders, right from the start and thinking how together are we going to design this process? What do we want it to look like? So it's not me imposing a process, it's me designing a process with people who are involved. That's, you know, where are we going to meet? Maybe it's online these days. How much time are we going to take? Are we going to meet all together in a roundtable meeting? Are we going to, you know, so that process and that designing process goes on. And then being very clear that this is a conversation, it's a dialogue, it's not a court case, I'm not hearing evidence, I don't need to be persuaded. We together need to see what the issues are, uncover what's not yet been uncovered, and make some critical decisions about how do we resolve this or how do you resolve this. And so it's very much, I believe very much in this philosophy of self-determination. It doesn't matter whether it's your children or your staff or people in a mediation. We all have the power and should be empowered to make our own decisions and be in control of the outcome. And it's giving that responsibility back to the parties and saying, you decide, we'll facilitate, we'll uncover all the information, but you make your own decision what's the best way forward for you. For that to be possible, they have to drag themselves out of the drama. So let's start with that. There is a rule that ego thrives on drama. Mm. So I'd like to start with the premise that it's our ego that normally gets us in trouble. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, so I talk quite a lot about the escalation process of conflict. So conflict starts where people, their conversation breaks down, they stop talking to each other, and then it escalates through a series of stages till you get to the bottom two stages, which are, I'm afraid I might lose face, and the final stage is into the abyss together. So we're trying to, and usually I'm rescuing people from those last two stages into the abyss together, and I don't want to lose face here. So absolutely the ego is at the stage I inherit a a conflict or or a dispute, usually one of the main factors. I have a a depressingly embarrassing uh, example in my marriage, and it's a formula called I said, she said. (laughs) <laughs> so I say to my wife, sweetheart, where are my keys? And she says, wherever you left them. Yes. Uh, my child gets pricked and turns to the voice of my father, who says, are you going to let her get away with that? And I say, well, you know, if the place was a bit tidier and <laughs> then, uh, taps into her mother because uh, her child gets pricked and she says, well, if you weren't such a slob and World War Three breaks out. And I suspect that anyone who's been in a marriage has seen that escalation happen, uh, unless they're much better adjusted than either me or my wife. Again, how do we recognise when we are getting dragged into drama? I think that's the thing I'm trying to help people with, because we all do, and even I do, and uh, you know, and you just explained that you do, even I do as a mediator, we get dragged into this drama, which is not only about our ego, but it's also about the instinctive reactions that we have as an animal species, which are designed to protect us, and we are triggered by our fear response. And so that, and I've just written about this on LinkedIn today, we have this emotional barometer, and when our emotions are high, our logic's low. Mm-hmm. And we are physically, we are, <laughs> we're incapable of responding logically. So, you know, when people come into a mediation and try to act, like lawyers and say, well, the rational response to this is and the rational answer to this is, it doesn't really matter. You've got to deal with the emotion and wherever that's built up to first, 
and there's usually a backstory to that and that that can go on for some time so I think that you know that's the answer we are all emotional and we are all designed to act out of fear first and protect ourselves and that's what we're doing really we're trying to protect ourselves in a very sort of instinct and primeval way. There is a book I think it's called how emotions work. So there is a formula, which is negative expectation, negative preference, as compared with reality as perceived, equals an emotional reaction. Now, there is a grown-up version of this, which is positive expectation and positive preference as compared with the reality as you perceive it, equals a rational response. But it requires people to operate from a different space. Where you end up getting the emotional reaction, you're operating from what we would call the drama triangle. It has three points, the victim, the persecutor, and the rescuer. Now, my favorite philosopher, Bruce Lee, was asked, what's the best way to avoid a punch? And he described, uh, he said, be somewhere else. Now, fabulous bit of advice, but the somewhere else is the winner's triangle, which is vulnerable, nurturing and empathic, and assertive. And as a result of that, you stay out of the fight. Because I think what tends to happen very often is we get sucked into psychological gameplay because our ego gets pricked and we t- then take one of the three positions of the drama triangle, yeah. the victim, the persecutor, and the rescuer. H- how do we recognize when we're taking one of those positions? All of this comes down to awareness, Marcus. And you know, a lot of my work, apart from mediating, is trying to help people, you know, which is why I write and, and comment on, on this topic, is trying to raise the level of awareness because we are all we are all vulnerable to this way of behaving unless we have some something that, you know, when we get into it, we can say, hang on a minute, this is what's happening, and I've learned a better way. And we only learn a better way. We don't know a better way because we are instinctive and possibly the way we've been brought up by our families. So I have a model which shows all this. But, you know, our culture, which is, you know, what we've been brought up with in our families, our schools and organisations and our conditioning, what we've actually experienced in life, all leads us to do, as well as our instinct, what we do. And the only way to break out of that is to be conscious and committed to a different way so we have to learn a different way and then we have to consciously do that and that's a challenge (laughs) for all of us it is I think under pressure we revert back to what we learned first and uh, our natural instinct is to go defensive and to justify defend to shirk blame and responsibility so What do you advise people to do in order to stay out of that drama triangle and move into that more rational space where they can respond instead of react? I think the first thing you have to do, the first thing any of us have to do is just take a a break or a breath or something. You have to sort of, you've got to break the process or the chain or whatever it is, you've got to stop it and think, hang on what's actually happening here? What's this all about? And what are my options? So being able to just take that, you know, instead of instinctively, we probably have already instinctively reacted and then think, hang on a minute, and step back from it, which can actually mean just walking away or taking a break, or even apologising to the person you're with and saying, hang on, I just need to stop for a minute. I coached a couple of executives on this once and they were getting into spats in the boardroom and they said, what we need is we need, we need a secret message between us in the boardroom where when we get into one of our spats, we can just have this secret message and it will stop us in our tracks. And they did that and they said it was very successful. But we do need these messages to ourselves and even perhaps to our partners to say, hang on a minute, we've got dragged into this drama again. Let's stop this and wind back a bit. It's like rewinding the, it's like rewinding the video, isn't it? Let's do that take again. I think it's like having... Apparently, in S&M, they have safety words, and I think that's what you're describing there, so that you don't end up beating someone who doesn't want to be beaten. Again, that was wholly inappropriate, but still funny. Tell me this, what does someone who's fully integrated and is aware, because I think what you were describing there was being aware that you are being triggered. What does someone who's fully integrated and fully aware do when they recognize those triggers what are the steps that they can go through you've mentioned breathing you've mentioned walking away is there a syntax or a structure that you found is particularly helpful or is that something that is tailored 
for each individual? It's totally for each individual. I think what I do in my work is to give people options. So it's not as though you have to say, well, here's the script you have to use. There are different techniques then that you can use. You know, one is questioning yourself, like what's actually going on here? What was it that triggered me? So going through a process with yourself. And then there are the processes that you can go through to have a more effective dialogue with the other person and step back in and say, well, because mostly when we're triggered it we're what I call we're in a bubble so we're in our own self absorbed we're very self-absorbed this is how I feel this is what's going on for me and we're not actually thinking about the other person at all and so when we can step out of that bubble and think well what was going on for the other person and what inferences and assumptions have I made that I need to test out so then beginning to have a dialogue where you sort of say well what was going on for you I I always give the example Marcus this is one of our and I get lots of matrimonial advice on this and it's probably true but I can't remember how much I've embroidered the story so I (laughs) I come home from work and the rubbish bin is overflowing and it's my husband's job to put the rubbish out every week so uh and I've had a bad day at work. Then he comes home from work. And uh, before he's really put a foot in the door, I say, look at the rubbish bin. The rubbish is all over the floor. You haven't put the rubbish out yet again. And he says, I completely disagree. I absolutely did put the rubbish out. I remember putting it out at 8.40 last week, you see. So I say, (laughs) (laughs) what's wrong with that? So, you know, a few things. We've both had a bad day at work. He's answered my emotion with logic and facts. So, you know, hasn't answered my emotion with emotion. Um, So we've completely triggered each other. And what was it all about? It was about we both had a bad day. It was nothing to do with the rubbish. And mostly I find it's not the conflict is not what people say it's about. It's about something else. So the rubbish was a catalyst. It was a trigger. Uh, and it may be part, it may be a small issue, but it wasn't the issue. The issue is we both had a bad day and neither of us have given each other, heard each other's story. See what I mean? Absolutely. This is something we teach, which is called stamp collecting. Yes. And it's like collecting stamps from Costa Coffee or from Starbucks. Eventually what happens is your card gets filled oh. and then you have a free blowout. So... I'm somebody who likes to have, uh, let's pretend, uh, I like routine and I like my supper on the table at 6.45 every day and I have my routine. And I come home and my wife hasn't prepared supper. This is being uh, terribly patriarchal. And she says, you know, the kids were a nightmare today. It's going to be another half hour. And then I say, okay, fine. And she can hear the anger in my voice. So I put a little red stamp in my book and she puts a little purple bruise stamp in her book. And then Wednesday happens, same sort of thing. Thursday happens. On Friday, both of our stamp books are almost full and the same thing happens. And I say, every bloody day this week, rah, 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 rah. And so I put my final stamp in and I go down the pub and grumble and bury my head in a pint. And she gets on the phone to her mother and says what an awful husband I am. And uh, you know, we both have that free, free out because we've collected those stamps. And what's happened is it wasn't the, the moment that all that was was a catalyst for all yeah. that simmering resentment. Yeah. Now, if we look at the level of resentment and the, the way people hold on to their anger and their frustration and their feeling diminished, how do we create an environment where people can feel that they can tell the truth in a safe way, in a work environment. It's challenging, isn't it? And it's all about, it's all about the language and it's all about, I suppose it's about once you have this awareness, you don't necessarily judge your colleagues in that moment. You give them, you give them the benefit of the doubt, if you like. We use something called the ladder of inference. And so at the top level, on the top rung of the ladder, you're inferring that your colleague meant to, meant to upset you. So you think, oh, they said that and they must have meant or they must have known. But the bottom of the ladder is the lower level of inference. I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. I'm assuming they had no idea what that statement meant or that they'd hurt me or that, you know. So I think that's the first thing we have to think, what level of inference? What am I assuming here? We often assume the worst. And, you know, we're seeing this at the moment with quite a lot of racial tension and 
a lot of people taking offence at things that weren't intended to. So there's the difference between intention and the difference between the impact that words have. And and you have to go back to what did somebody intend? So an awful lot of this requires a lot of thinking. That's the trouble. You know, you've got to have the space to think, I wonder what was actually going on there in their head and in my head and, you know, all of that. And then you've got to take the time to have the dialogue. So it's much easier not to do that. The easier path is to have the spat and blow up and walk out and then come back or whatever. That's what we usually do because it requires a lot of thought uh, and processing and thinking about it. But once you get into the rhythm of it, I think, you know, giving people the benefit of the doubt, giving a little bit of space, checking. I mean, this big thing that I do is just checking with somebody. You just said that. What did you actually mean by that? Rather than my but rather than responding, thinking, I wasn't very happy or I wasn't very sure what you said. I wasn't very sure what you meant. So that whole thing of just checking and actually saying, when you said that, it made me feel a little bit uncomfortable. I wondered if you realized that. So I use something called the power of 10, which is tentative language, the power of using tentative language, rather than coming back with something which is very definite or even aggressive on my behalf. I do this thing of checking and saying, I wonder if you realized, or I'm assuming that you meant this, but I wasn't quite sure. And that can take the steam out of things. So the power of 10 is a great tool, actually, for this. Fabulous. Well, I'd love to delve into that in a little bit more detail. The, the, the Winner's Triangle is a fabulous resource for that, if you can remember, and you need to practice to get into this. And the first step is go vulnerable. Jane, I, I'm so sorry. I've clearly done something or said something that's upset you. And that certainly wasn't my intention. I hope you can forgive me. Now, that will take a lot of the steam out of uh, someone who's uh, angry or upset with you. Mark Galston, in his fabulous book, Just Listen, has a five-step process, the um, oh, fuck to okay. When you have a bad situation and you're, you're starting to boil, the first thing you do is you say, oh, fuck, I can't believe this is happening. Oh, hell, I, oh, no, this is... And then you go through this process of five steps And it's, oh, fuck, oh, hell, oh, shit, oh, no, oh, well, okay. And that five-step process prevents amygdala hijack. And the part of the problem here is, and as Jane was alluding to earlier, is we are basically mammals. And we've got a brain structure and an endocrine system that pumps out hormones. If we allow our primitive brain to take over then rationale goes out of the window and we then just become a creature of emotion and so you mentioned earlier breathing so taking a pause breathing maybe circular breathing pausing for four to ten seconds before you respond so that you don't just react but you have to be aware of that so again how do you make sure that you are rehearsed enough so that your instinctive reaction isn't the first response I think all you can do is practice. And so, you know, what we're realizing more than ever as people who sort of train and help others is that it isn't what you learn from me. It's the implementation of it that matters. So how can I help people to practice and rehearse? And and to do that, you have to have a process and you have to be accountable. So maybe, you know, some kind of coaching, some kind of coming back to here are five things that happened to me this week and here's how I handled them. But having to log those and be accountable for those in a kind of coaching format is the way to go because unless you are accountable, unless you're keeping a kind of log and and mapping out your learning process, you're not going to, and it's the same for anything. It doesn't matter whether we're learning to drive or, I was thinking about the breathing, you know, anytime you learn something new, it doesn't matter whether it's skiing or singing, Every coach says to you, don't forget to breathe, because when we're under stress, we forget to breathe. We forget to breathe when we're singing. We forget to breathe when we're doing something new. So all of these things, but as we get into the pattern of it and our brain starts to relax, we breathe again. So just what we're doing is creating new patterns in the brain, but we have to constantly repeat. I can't remember how many times you have to repeat something. The research suggests 66 days in a row. Yep. Is the average uh, that it takes to form a new habit. Yeah, so if you imagine you had to keep a log of your, your sort of dialogue with your wife over 66 days <laughs> and report to somebody else at how well you were doing and how well you were integrating 
you know, that's the kind of thing that we're talking about. And yet, do we do that? No, we go on a one day course and we say, oh, that's marvellous. I've just learned all about this chimp brain and and that we go away and now I know, but we don't know, or we do know, but we still don't make a difference. And so that's the difficulty that we have in all of us in implementing this stuff is we still don't spend enough time trying to integrate it into our lives. So to summarise, document either in a journal or a log, capture the lessons, and then practice repeatedly over a long period of time and do so with intent. Yes, and possibly then be accountable to somebody else, somebody external, whether it is a coach or someone else, to your progress. That makes a good deal of sense. Excellent. Okay, so what are the three questions people should ask but don't about mediation and conflict Uh, resolution? One of the things I want to ask is, what is the cost of conflict and how is it going to save me that? So the cost of conflict is not just financial. It's health and it's relationships and it's all sorts of other things like productivity and motivation. So understanding what they're going to save, I suppose. Understanding truly how it works, I guess. And then understanding what should I be looking for in a mediator? Because I think people don't understand actually what am I looking for? What kind of person am I looking for for this particular issue? Actually, you just sparked a really interesting question in my mind, which is, Is there a way to bring in a mediator in order to facilitate constructive conflict? So my whole premise is about the magic of conflict. I talk about that. I don't, you know, many people in my field say, let's let's practice conflict avoidance. And I say, no, don't do that. Conflict, and you talked about the catalyst, but conflict is a magic ingredient in that it's the catalyst to change. If only we could say, you know, things have built up to a state where we're saying we can't carry on like this. We have, may have a book full of stamps on either side, but we could, therefore, we, and we're going to build up another book of stamps next week. So what is that telling us? What is that telling us about how we work around here? What is that telling us about how things could be better? And so my premise has always been, I'd love to, to let your listeners think about this, is to have a system or a framework within your organization, even within your family, where you know that conflict is a good thing. It's going to happen like it's going to rain, but you need to capture that water. You're not going to sort of let your house be waterlogged. So you have you have gutters and things to catch the rain and put it down the drain. We need to catch conflict and channel it in a way that we can deal with it constructively. And that means knowing when it's happening and then saying, ah, This is what, particularly in organization, this is what we should do with it. And what most people do in organizations is they escalate it. They say, I don't like conflict, so I'll go to my boss and I'll say I'm having trouble with my colleague and and you sort it out. Or we go to HR and lodge a grievance or a complaint. Or we go to our lawyers and we say, I'm unhappy with my suppliers, issue proceedings. Instead of saying, what would happen if we had some kind of dialogue between us first? If that was the very first step and we had the process to do that, even if that involved bringing in a third party, that we could have a simple dialogue and we could say what's gone wrong here or what's beginning to go wrong here if you caught it early enough. So I see the whole thing as a window of opportunity where the end point of a deadlock dispute is right at the end. But there's this whole window during which you could be using mediation and you could be using dialogue to find opportunities for things to be even better than they are now. Interesting, really interesting, because I I think something that we tend to miss because we've been conditioned to think that conflict is bad is that, and all conflict is bad, and it absolutely isn't, because I've found that through constructive conflict, my best ideas have come. And I I interviewed a fascinating man, Patrick Lindqvist, who is the chief innovation advisor to the city of Helsingborg in Sweden. And they have created an environment where they've actually hired people whose job is to be a gap manager. And these are the people who sit between the different departments. And it's their job to spot the differences and make the best of those differences by creating an environment where people can communicate. And instead of seeing it as them and us, we're working towards common purpose, which is, in their case, to uh, turn Helsingborg into a center of innovation. And what's been really fascinating 
is how they've managed to create meaningful, lasting change that affects people's lives in a really positive way in the primary school system, in elder care, in transport, um, with actually a relatively modest budget, but a real purpose and a mission. And so that then brings me to the next critical question, which is how do you make sure that as you go into a mediation, both sides share common purpose? Well, that's quite hard in some ways, Marcus, because you never know what people's intention is. And in some cases these days, I mean, I spoke to a client yesterday who said, I know the court are going to suggest, I mean, I've had the form from the court and they suggest we go to mediation. So it's a box I've got to tick. So there's a challenge today in in many cases that people think, well, I ought to try mediation rather than I want to try mediation. Having said that, you know, if I do a good job before a mediation and explaining what the opportunities are and how it works, and one of the things I've done now for my clients is create a little video so they can have a look at that and see how can you, I call it how to win at mediation. So, you know, what can you do as my client to enhance your experience of being in a mediation and what what work could you do before you come don't just show up on the day with your all your legal papers and uh, as if you were going to court because that's you're still you've prepared for war and not for dialogue I want you to come prepared for dialogue and not for war so there's this sense of which we've all got a bit of work to do we don't just show up on the day and say right you know how does this process work we've got to think about it a little bit beforehand okay so In terms of how one does prepare for mediation, uh, if you have found yourself in a conflict situation and it feels like you're not able to create the conditions for an agreement, they're bringing bringing you in, presumably, to rent an adult, to have an adult in the room to referee, but also to come up with a a better outcome. How, How do you advise people to prepare so that they are coming in looking to win at mediation, but win for both sides. I think one thing, a number of things, I think one thing people haven't thought about is they've thought about whether they're right or they're wrong, but they haven't thought, what outcome do I want? Where do I actually want to get to? And what does that look like? So they've got no long-term vision. They haven't done this proper cost analysis. They've probably done a legal cost analysis, but they haven't worked out how much this is going to cost them overall in terms of loss of productivity and all of the things I talked about, you know, the impact on their health, the impact on their family uh, and the impact on their relationships. So they haven't done that analysis. So I asked them to do that analysis. Those sort of things, I think, you know, looking at a very much bigger picture about where does this conflict sit in the context of your business and of your life? Where are you trying to get to rather than I'm right and you're wrong? Uh, And to come with that sort of mindset, if you like. And then to understand a little bit about, you know, what dialogue and some and sometimes I just want people to have I have a term called write it to write it, which is most people come with their legal pleadings where they've written out what their case is. I'd like them to just write that very simple storyline about where did this start and where have you got to? So what's your story to date? And when people do that, what happens at an emotional level? You see, what happens in most mediations is people do need to tell their story and they do need to tell their story to the other person and they need the other person to hear that story and acknowledge it. And that's often what doesn't happen because the other person gets triggered and starts responding again, no, I didn't. And So the job of the mediator is often to hear it. So everybody's hearing things. You hear yourself telling the story so you can reflect on it. The mediator is hearing you and hopefully helping the other person to hear it and to respond positively in the sense of, I've actually heard what you said, even if I don't agree with it, I am hearing your story. And that can be the transformation. You know, so often in life, we don't feel heard, acknowledged and understood at any level. Mark Goulston says that one of the principal human drivers is that we all want to be heard, Mm -hmm. feel felt and be understood and it's the feeling felt that really matters more than anything else that people need to feel that the other person understands and recognizes how their behavior has made the other person feel because we are creatures of emotion so that then raises another important question which is 
given that we are creatures of emotion and we are also creatures of story, how can story help manage, uh, effectively manage and create a positive outcome at an emotional level? In a mediation? Yeah. Well, it's all about story. I think, you know, what sometimes people have come into a mediation and say, we know what our we know what our bottom line is, they know what the bottom line is. Why don't we just cut to the chase? We don't need to have a joint session. Why don't we just start negotiating? And whenever you do that, or my experience is when you do that, when you cut this storytelling session, it often doesn't work. It bumps along because that process of being able to tell your story and be heard hasn't worked at any level. And so you just haven't got that bit out of the way. And unless you get that bit out of the way, the negotiation isn't going to be so effective. I mean, you can do it, but you're just blind trading, really. You're just trading figures. And then the question is, you may have settled, but have you resolved the conflict? So you might come out with a settlement, but what we're looking for is resolution. Can I go away and say, I can draw a line under that and it's gone away rather than, okay, they gave me some money, but I still bear some resentment. I'm still not forgotten that issue and it's still eating away at me. So in fact, the cost of conflict is still, you know, the the counter is still rolling because you haven't resolved the conflict. So there are two important distinctions here. The difference between resolution and settlement and the difference between mediation and negotiation. Yes. So how do we make sure that both sides walk away with a resolution that both sides are happy and can live with without necessarily having to make needless concessions that don't really result in resolution? I think the one thing I explain to people is it's their responsibility, but my job as a mediator is simply this, to enable you to enter into a more effective dialogue than the ineffective dialogue you're in now and to get clear. So it's all about clarity. What's this really about? What do you really want? What story do you really need to tell? What are your options? What criteria are you using to decide upon those options? So we have to go through this process where I get clear. I mean, I may be able to have my ideal outcome, but if it's an outcome I can live with and I can draw a line under the conflict. So it's all a process of getting clarity about those things and knowing what my options are and making the best choice I can possibly make in the circumstances that satisfies as much of my needs as the other person. So how frequently do you find that ambiguity and expectation creates that conflict? I think a lot. And I think, you know, I think wherever it comes from, the expectation that just because I feel morally that I'm right, that's what I'm going to get, or that's what I'm entitled to. You know, so often people say to me, but I'm right. I said, well, it doesn't really matter whether you're right or you're wrong. You know, what, where are you likely to get to? How much is it? Like, even if you are 100% right, but if the other side isn't recognizing that, you've still got to go through a court process to get to, to that point you know, how much is that worth to you? How much do you need to prove that you're right versus you need to resolve this issue for all those different reasons? So again, I think it's really important to take away this lesson that you can be right or you can get the outcome that you want. And if you're trying to be right, that's your ego being hooked. And if you want to achieve a resolution and an outcome that you can live with, then you need to subsume your ego. Ego is the enemy in all of this, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I was quoting last week uh, in a, a Rumi who says, out beyond ideas of right doing and wrong doing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that then uh, brings me to a Mark Twain quote, which is, anger is the acid that etches the vessel that contains it. Oh, yes, um, yes. And I think the mistake people make is by wanting to be right they're holding on to the anger and what's really interesting is you know if you were bullied at school for example and you reach back into your history and you drag that emotion because you have a flashback to that uh, event or you had a row with your spouse or partner or someone you work with uh, that person is not feeling that emotion at that moment they probably don't even know you exist in that moment 
And I, I think far too often people forget that having righteous indignation and anger serves no one, least of all you. But we're not rational creatures. We're creatures of emotion and we are crazy. What flabbergasts me, the only people, well, maybe it's lawyers and economists who think that human beings uh, are logical, but we're not. We are absolutely batshit crazy. And it flabbergasts me that after all the evidence, you know, people who think that they're rational, you'd have thought that it maybe worked out. Actually, we're not rational. So this then raises another important question in my mind. How can systems and processes help protect us from ourselves and from this irrational monkey child that's stuck inside of all of us? Well, I've, interestingly, I've just gone back to somebody who really inspired me uh, many years ago, and I've just interviewed him myself for a, a podcast, is a lawyer called P.D. Villarreal, and he worked for GE, General Electric, in the States. And he was one of the people who inspired me to do what I do, apart from a book falling on my head in the library, because he had taken a systematic approach to conflict within GE and then cascaded that throughout the company. And it was a simple step-by-step process. And if your if your listeners are interested, Marcus, I've got a blueprint for this, which is, you know, it's a simple framework to say, At the first level, you should have a face-to-face dialogue. At the next level, you should have facilitated dialogue. And you you go through a process and any conflict that arises should be flagged up early. So it's early. What it's called is an early dispute resolution or an early conflict resolution framework. So it, it gives responsibility to all employees within a company to raise issues of conflict early and know where to channel them. So it's this whole idea of water again. Where do we channel it? Where should it go? To whom should I talk? Within what time frame should I escalate it to the next stage? If that doesn't work, within what time frame should I escalate it to the next stage? What does that look like? Who do I speak to? What do I do? So it is a simple process, but it's never, in most organizations, it's not mapped out. They've only got their HR formal grievance processes. They don't have an early conflict resolution map. And so, therefore, things get escalated. This reminds me of a conversation I recently had with a genuinely fascinating gentleman called Ian Dodds. Ian was the group people and organizational development head for ICI for over 20 years. And he created environments within ICI that turned around truly awful workplace environments by creating inclusiveness by having dialogue through listening and throughout his very long career he's been involved in diversity inclusiveness and not one of his projects ever failed and I think the principle there is that he bothered to listen within ICI he was the first manager who actually went to speak to the workforce to find out what their grievances were, what the problems were, where the gaps were. And as a result of that, he turned around the worst performing factories that they had into the best performing factories. And he created multicultural environments where people from all sorts of diverse ethnic backgrounds, gender, uh, sexuality, uh, sexual preferences, and so on, were brought into the workplace. And it created more of an understanding because I think Often what happens is uh, when we see people as different, what we see is the differences rather than reveling in the difference. We see it as a threat. Now, what I'm fascinated by is why we don't celebrate difference. What, what is it in our makeup that causes us to see difference as a threat, that them versus us scenario? Well, I suppose if you go right back to the sort of beginning of history where we lived in very small tribes, Anybody who was from a different tribe, who therefore looked slightly different to us, would potentially be a threat. So it is a genuine instinctive response to someone outside our family or outside our tribe potentially posing a threat to us. I guess it's I guess it's that. So, you know, I suppose it is just this instinct, really. And yet, and yet we know when we get to know people who are genuinely different to us, we often find that we have lots of things in common 
and the difference isn't a threat. But all of the a lot of the gestures that we have, you know, for example, shaking hands and things are things, and even smiling is a sense of let me just sort of test out: are you friendly or are you a threat to me? We do these things because they are ways of testing the water to see: are you going to, you know, are you going to threaten me? In fact, the House of Commons. The gap between the, the the seats in the House of Commons is designed to be just over a sword's length away because it was thought that people would necessarily would might attack you know that, that, so that they couldn't attack each other with their swords. My father <laughs> used to be the head of the Old Bailey, and he used to uh, get to wear seventeenth-century court dress, and he wore a sword up until lunchtime, and then it was confiscated from him because one of his predecessors about 300 years previous managed to see two people having a fight or arguing and he ran both of them through. So they decided that they'd remove his sword. I think he was one of the happiest men alive because uh, he <laughs> loved his job and he ended up buying most of the Kremlin's wine cellar when they went bankrupt. So I'd like to finish off on this question for this part of the conversation, which is I, th- I think what you've pointed to there is if you are curious, then you will bother to try and find out about the other person and you will approach their difference with curiosity rather than with fear. Is that a fair observation? Yes, I have this term called fervent curiosity. We all need to have fervent curiosity. (laughs) I love that. Yes. And we don't, you know, we often, we've already made our mind up. So it's don't make your mind up until you've expressed Fervent curiosity. Excellent. And how would you define fervent curiosity? What does the word fervent mean? It means restless, doesn't it? And you just keep on wanting to know more and more. So you keep on digging until you feel there's no more to know, really. And is there ever no more to know? No, never, because I've been practicing as a mediator for 25 years and there's plenty more to know. So, (laughs) Interestingly enough, the more I know, the more questions I have. that's been a huge asset in my life. I, I've, I'm ever grateful for the fact that I can never get to the bottom of things. Yes. Wonderful. Okay. Who are you influenced by? What are you reading, watching, listening to that you think, yes, this is stuff that other people should really pay heed to? Oh, gosh, so much. I mean, my office here is completely, I'm completely surrounded by books the whole time. But I've gone back at the moment to Viktor Frankl. Man's search for meaning. And, you know, it just means such a lot at the moment when we're in lockdown because, you know, where do you go? You go back inside yourself. You know, when you search for meaning and when you're trying to sort of cope with things, you can't necessarily make sense of what's going on outside. But the way you survive and the way Viktor Frankl survived inside a concentration camp was just to go back within himself and find the resources that he needed and humor as well. And in many cases, in mediations, even in very dire situations, we find enormous humour. And that's one of the things I enjoy about the job, is we can always find something to be humorous about, which is, is good fun. So I would recommend, absolutely endorse uh, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And I would also look at Just Listen by Mark Goulston and his other fabulous book, Talking to Crazy, which is all about your inner dialogue, first of all, and dealing with the crazy person inside of you. Fabulous. And may I mention my book, Marcus, which is Bedlam in the Boardroom and Boredom in the Bedroom. (laughs) (laughs) Fabulous title. Uh, (laughs) Wonderful. So tell me this, what are you struggling with yourself? Myself? Oh, I've been struggling with lockdown, I think, in that, you know, mediation and the work that I do is very much face-to-face. It's about people. It's about engaging with people. I'm enjoying very much the fact that we can still do it via Zoom. And, and, you know, you and I have just got to know each other in this way. But, you know, I think there's a lot that we we get from being in a room with each other, even though we clash, you know, this visceral sense of really getting to know someone to experience someone when you meet with them and I'm really really struggling with that at the moment is this lack of human contact I know we all are but um you know it is despite the fact that we we spark off each other we do spark off each other in a positive way as well in getting together and meeting I'm really curious about your thoughts on this because I I, again I I love the face-to-face interaction I've thoroughly enjoyed the work that I've done over the last 10-11 weeks over uh, Zoom but 
What do you think these platforms need to do to evolve so that they can create greater engagement? Because chances are, from the, the current evidence, it looks like we're going through a second spike or we're about to, and lockdown may well continue for another six to 18 months. So how do you think these technologies should evolve in order to create a more human experience? I think we've partly got to evolve how we use them. So we've got to think about what is what are people experiencing, as we do in any situation, how are people experiencing me rather than what am I experiencing from the system? And we're so busy trying to get used to the system, trying to understand how people experience us. And I guess we've just got to play with, you know, we've got to play with our own technology and how are we seen, how are we heard, things like that. I don't really know. I mean, you know, being in a box on a screen isn't quite <laughs> quite normal, is it really? It is a bit odd. Okay, so if you had a golden ticket and you could go back and advise the idiot Jane, age 23, how to avoid a lifetime of misery and self-sabotage, what would you look for for <laughs> Actually, I don't think I've had a life of misery and self-sabotage. <laughs> I've thoroughly enjoyed my life up till now, but I really had no idea, you know, where the journey would take me. If you'd asked me at the age 23, would I be doing what I do now? I wouldn't have had a clue what it was or that I'd be doing it. So I think the answer is don't assume, you know, again, don't make assumptions that you know where your journey is going or that you're not going to have to go through difficult times. But, you know, enjoy the enjoy the ride, I think, is the answer. Yeah, fabulous. <laughs> Dane Gunn, thank you so much. I've thoroughly thank enjoyed you. this conversation. Thank you, Marcus. Me too. Excellent. I hope we can do it again soon. I do too. Thank you very much indeed. How can people get hold of you? My website's janegunn.co.uk and I'm happy to send you a link for some free resources if people would like those too. Yes, please. I'll, so I'll add those into the blurb at the bottom um, when we publish. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast once again. And uh, thank you again to Jane Gunn. So please, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then get in touch. Email me at mcauchi at sandler.com or get in touch via LinkedIn. And if you think you would be a good guest for the podcast or there's someone you believe would be an interesting guest, then please email me on the same email address. In the meantime, stay safe. Happy selling. Bye-bye.